1: Hi, it's Nathan Exley here. Before we get into the new episode of my podcast, I do need to warn you. On this episode, you might hear me asking you to send me a message with your opinion. I love hearing your opinions, but the messages you hear me reading out on air are from the live broadcast of the podcast, which takes place on Wizard Radio Station every Sunday from 3pm UK time. If you want to get involved, make sure you listen live then please don't try to send in any messages for this episode, as your message won't be read, but you might still be charged. Anyway, that's the legal bit done, now on to the show. Welcome, I'm Nathan Eckersley and on the show this week we are looking at COP26 and asking if the summit has been a success. Plus, I'll be speaking to former leader of the Green Party and member of the House of Lords, Baroness Bennett of Manor Castle. It's a packed show and I want to hear from you, so let's go. to open today's show with a reflection on this Remembrance Sunday. Remembrance Sunday is an opportunity every year to remember the service and sacrifice of all those who have defended our freedoms in all wars and to think about those whose lives have been changed by conflict. We also mark Armistice Day annually with a two minute silence on the eleventh hour of the eleventh day of the eleventh month to mark the end of the First World War. In 2008, we commemorated the 90th anniversary of the end of the First World War, and the last three veterans of the Great War were in attendance at the National Service of Remembrance at the Cenotaph in Westminster. A few months after that event, all three sadly died, and a connection to that period of history was lost forever. Today, we sadly approach that point with the Second World War, as more and more people who fought in that conflict and lived through that time are dying, and another connection to that era is disappearing. That is why occasions like Remembrance Sunday and Armistice Day are so important, because we must remember those who fought for our freedoms in all wars and commemorate the sacrifice they made, because as World War II poet John Edmunds Maxwell wrote, for your tomorrow, we gave our today. Those commemorations also show why it is so vital That we look after our veterans today. This year, the Poppy Appeal, run by the Royal British Legion, marks its 100th anniversary of supporting veterans with mental health issues, assisting families who have lost loved ones in conflict, and helping troops with life-changing injuries adjust to their circumstances. The Royal British Legion and other charities are the main line of support for veterans because, unlike in the majority of countries, The UK has no main governmental infrastructure to help veterans. There is no known number of how many veterans there are in the UK, because successive governments have never made the effort to count them. And that I believe is a scandal. It is only since Boris Johnson became prime minister that an office for veterans affairs was created to give ex-servicemen and women the help they need. But even that is terribly underfunded. Anyone who joins the armed forces to defend Queen and Country has the absolute right to receive support from the government that sends them into the most dangerous situations. Whilst this government is trying, their efforts aren't enough and the burden of helping veterans in their time of need falls on charities like the Royal British Legion. So this weekend we should pause, reflect and remember the sacrifices made by those who serve to protect and defend us and our natural right to freedom. Now, onto our main topic for this week, which is COP26, the UN uh, Climate Change Summit, which has been taking place in Glasgow over the last two weeks. COP26 is, to use its full name, the 26th Conference of the Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. A COP summit is held every year, which seeks to get all countries around the world to agree on a set of commitments to reduce global carbon emissions and slow the rise in warming the planet. The last time a major breakthrough was made was at COP21 in Paris in December 2015, when delegates agreed to keep the increase in global temperatures well below 2 degrees Celsius and to begin adapting food production to cater for the effects of climate change, as well as to make global finance go to more sustainable projects. The main criticism of the deal was that it was forcing richer countries to give money to poorer countries with little accountability into how that money was used, which is the reason why Donald Trump withdrew the US from the agreement. However, President Biden readmitted the US to the deal. This year, delegates hope to go further by committing to reduce that temperature to 1.5 degrees Celsius by the year 2100. Major pledges have been made in removing subsidies on fossil fuels and coal, which is the first time those energy sources have been included in any COP agreement. However, as with every COP agreement, there have been so many compromises that the final deal is always a shell of what the ambitions were going into it. This is what the Prime Minister hoped COP26 would achieve in his remarks at the opening of the summit. Let us also do enough to save our planet and our way of life. And as we work, let us think about those billions of beady eyes that are watching us around the world, increasingly edgy and disenchanted. And let us think of the billions more of the unborn whose anger will be all the greater if we fail. Climate change is a serious issue, which needs addressing. But I think we're looking at this in the wrong way. The entire debate around COP26 and climate change is centred around what governments around the world can do to help. So far, all governments have done are impose arbitrary taxes on different products which adversely affects uh, adversely impacts on working people, or simply banning products just for the sake of banning them. Stopping the sale of plastic straws or placing a 10p tax on plastic bags makes such a small impact. It really is a drop in the ocean when you see that China, Russia and India alone account for well over 50% of global emissions. In order to truly combat climate change, the private sector must lead the way, and rather than government stating what must and must not be done, government needs to give the market the freedom to be bold with proposing new ideas and incentivising innovation. It isn't enough for the UK government to ban the sale of petrol and diesel vehicles, and leave manufacturers to find a solution. Companies should be rewarded for moving towards a more environmentally friendly practice or for making cleaner products through measures like tax cuts or grants for research and development. Similarly, reforming the property market so that people become homeowners means that more people become stakeholders in their communities and have an incentive to look after their own environment, therefore contributing to the overall effort. Because property rights have been weakened over so many decades, it becomes easier to violate and exploit those rights, leading to a world of renters not having the incentive to conserve property and their local environment, as they have no stake in its its longevity. The basic laws of supply and demand also have a huge impact on combating climate change. As resources like coal, fossil fuels and lithium become scarcer, Their prices will rise, forcing consumers and manufacturers to look elsewhere and to create alternative power and energy supplies. Governments need to accept this rather than keep subsidising these products because keeping prices artificially low for expensive products always has a knock-on effect and limits the entrepreneurial spirit which creates the ideas of tomorrow. COP26 provides a forum for an important conversation about climate change and for providing solutions to the biggest problems. We've seen some big commitments, some not big enough, but overall the debate around it is very one-sided and that is where the whole thing falls down. It is only once enterprise is unleashed that we will see the most radical solutions be realised and our environment becomes much safer. I want to hear from you on this so please do get in touch You can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at WizRadio. You can vote in our poll. The question of the day is, has COP26 been a success? To vote on the poll, visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. You can text us at no extra cost, only standard network rates apply, at 07807 183538. You can email us station at wizardradio.co.uk. All of our contact details can be found on our website at www.wizardradio.co.uk. We'll be back after this. I want to hear what you have to say on the big issues of today, which is COP26, the big environmental summit that's just taken place in Glasgow. And last night, we received the draft agreement of what was going on in COP26. And there's been a lot of controversy around it, particularly with China and India demanding concessions on not phasing out coal, but actually phasing down the use of coal. And that's really angered a lot of the smaller Pacific nations in particular. So there's lots to talk about on this issue, and I want to hear from you. But our first message today comes from Jacob. Jacob says... I heard in the news reports before your show, Nathan, that there is a politician in Australia who is still defending cheap, dirty fuel like coal, saying that they are important to get people out of poverty. If there is still a politician saying that, then COP26 has not been a success. At the start of the COP26 conference, it actually started to feel like politicians were taking this issue seriously again. They were making pledges and talking about how we can protect the planet. But now, once again, I have no faith because deals have been watered down, politicians are still disagreeing, and time is running out. Climate change has been politicised, which is the worst thing that could possibly happen. This is yet again another disappointment. Well, thank you for that message, Jacob. And there have been a number of um, big disappointments throughout this uh, COP26 summit. I I just mentioned the uh, issue around coal then in the, the final agreement and this has been a really, really big bone of contention throughout the, the summit as well. I mean, it's the phrasing of it as well, going from phase out to phase down. It's not a removal of coal from the energy infrastructure, it's simply a reduction in the amount of use for it. And on coal, I mean, a lot of debate, particularly at the start of the summit as well, was looking at the UK's use of coal and there's been a lot of controversy around the UK government supporting the construction of a new coal mine in Cumbria. Now this coal mine is going to be used for coking coal which is used in the steel making process and is really key in manufacturing steel. Now the reason the UK government is so in favour of this Uh, new coal mine is not because it's going to be used for main heat and energy providing, but because having uh, coked coal made domestically will reduce the need to have it imported as it is already. Currently, it's imported mainly from Russia on big, heavy fuel-using cargo ships, many of them very, very old vessels as well. And the amount of emissions that are pumped out from these huge cargo ships... is really, really striking and is really detrimental to our environment. So that's the main reason why the UK government is so behind having this uh, new coal mine. But again, there's the other side of the argument to it as well, which is the fact that only a small amount of the uh, coked coal from this new proposed mine would be used domestically. A lot of it would be shipped elsewhere. So with any uh, climate change policy and environmental change, that there is a financial aspect. There's always the economic angle to look at with this, and that's how governments have been approaching this. And as you say, it, that's why this has become a politicized issue. Sadly, it was always going to be a politicized issue because it has such a huge ramification on how we live our lives. I mean, the, the path the UK in particular is taking to net zero as well. I mean, that does require governmental input. I fully accept that, but I think like with so many issues today, there is too much government in the process. I mean, why is it that the government is simply placing a ban, just for, as an example, a ban on the sale of petrol and diesel cars from 2030, and that's it? Why isn't it the case that governments are going to introduce a f- scaling down, a phasing out of petrol and diesel cars, and in favour of newer technologies such as electric vehicles or even uh, hydrogen power as well. Hydrogen is a really exciting technology, I think, because it's almost emission free. There's a lot of energy goes into producing it at the moment because it's such a new technology. But as innovation progresses and advances, hydrogen will become a much better technology to use. And once it's used as a fuel source, I believe there's a, a bus company in the West Midlands about to re- start replacing its fleet of buses with hydrogen powered buses. The emission produced is water vapor. You can't get much cleaner than, than water vapor here. And that that's why it's a really exciting innovation. But you're right to say that climate change has been politicized. I think it always was going to be because of the nature of moving to such a radical policy as net zero. There needs to be a greater allowance for the market to be free to innovate and come up with the new ideas. Thank you for that message, Jacob. And our next message comes from Yasmin. Yasmin says, China and India are the number one and number three emitting countries when it comes to CO2. They they jointly represent over 35% of global carbon emissions, and yet they were able to water down the language around coal in the COP26 agreement. I just don't understand how this can happen. There were over 200 countries represented at COP26. And yet these two countries were able to get the deal changed in their favour. Why did nobody san- stand up to them? If a conference about climate change, where the change can actually happen, is able to get watered down by the two worst emitters, then how can we have any faith at all that any change will really happen? I'm speechless and feeling very deflated about this. Well, thank you for that message, Yasmin. And there's a lot of people feeling deflated, uh, pessimistic about the, the final deal that came out of this and the path of climate change as well and how to tackle this I mean the the president of the summit Alex Sharma who sits who sits in the cabinet is the member of parliament for Reading Reading excuse me he was he was actually on the verge of tears at one at one point towards the end of the summit when he realised that through this concession, this major concession, this watering down of the entire agreement was the only way anything was going to get passed. But in some ways, there is a level of optimism to be had here because we see that this, these are the actions of the biggest emitters of emissions in the world. And as COP summits happen every year, the next summit is taking place in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt ne- this, around this time next year. So the same conversations are going to be had, the same debates and discussions are going to be around, and this is a framework for the next deal. And that's how it's been at all the the COP summits. It's just that some like uh, Copenhagen in the past, like Katowice in 2018, I believe it was in Poland, and Paris, most notably in 2015, the Paris Climate Accords, they were the ones where there were the biggest breakthroughs can't remember which year it was, but at the Copenhagen summit it was a good few years ago. That was the first summit where the world actually acknowledged that climate change is a major issue and that everyone needs to get on board with trying to resolve it. Uh, at Paris, that was the commitment to keep the global temperatures well below 2 degrees. And at this summit as well in particular, there's been a great focus on making sure that that commitment is at uh, 1.5 degrees and so th- there are some uh, levels of optimism to be had here and th- this is very much a framework to be built on next year and even the year after as well and in in future years but you know to have these two major economic powerhouses water down the deal for their own advantage it's it is a shame but unfortunately i think i think it was fairly predictable, especially when it comes to China becoming the world's largest economy within the next few years. So thank you for that message, Yasmin. And our next message comes from Alex. Alex says, Nathan, you make me laugh. In your introduction, you spoke about how private companies should lead the way in the fight against climate change and that you don't think the government are the people who are going to make the difference. And then you go on to talk about how the government should be giving tax cuts to companies not emitting and giving grants for research isn't that the government getting involved? There needs to be a combined effort with both the government and the private companies, but make no mistake that companies will just go for the cheapest option. And if the government allows unsustainable practices to remain being cheap options, then nothing will change. Individual companies are just trying to survive. The government needs to have the bigger picture. Well, thanks for that message, Alex. And my main argument around the, the involvement of the private sector and the government is that Throughout all of this debate and discussion, it's all about what government do, can do to get uh, ordinary people to uh, lead more sustainable lives and to become more environmentally friendly in their practices. But I'm, I'm not so keen on the idea that it's entirely on government to lead the way. I do think it, there has to be a level of uh, responsibility for government. I totally accept that. But government needs to be promoting the private sector in this, not leading the way. I, it needs to be uh, private companies who are given the incentive, as you say, quite rightly, by governments through tax cuts, through innovation grants to really get us to the point of net zero. Because fundamentally, if if com- companies are trying to uh, become more environmentally friendly and uh, governments impose things like carbon taxes and... Uh, other uh, nudging uh, activities to get uh, the private sector to get on board with this rather than really engage with them. Quite simply, they're just going to take their business elsewhere, as you say, to go with the cheapest option. And other uh, countries will be looking at doing this and having uh, tax cuts as an example for companies that uh, significantly lower their emissions year on year will Uh, get other companies to get involved in this and uh, uh, change their practices so that they are becoming more environmentally friendly. But my main argument around government also is that if they are going to get involved in leading the way on this, if that's the direction they choose to go in, then they they have to do so with actions, not just words. I mean, if you take, for example, at the COP summit, you had... the, the. uh, just before the, the leaders' summit, actually, you had the G20 held in Rome, and all the world leaders would uh, fly into Rome and uh, do the summit, and then immediately get all in their individual private jets with their big gas-guzzling motorcades and helicopters, etc., and then fly all the way to Glasgow for this climate change summit. Well, given that COP26 was a joint partnership with the UK government and the Italian government, surely some level of common sense could be made to have both the G20 and COP26, in Italy, and that would therefore significantly reduce emissions, especially when you see that President Biden, in his uh, trip to Europe, when he was in Italy, as well as having Air Force One, multiple private jets, helicopters, and cars flown in on freight aircraft, that in Italy he had an 85-car motorcade going uh, all the way through the streets of rome which is just absurd and even when he made it to glasgow as well again flying all those pieces over that was a 20 car motorcade there's absolutely no need for that and it was estimated that his entire four-day trip to europe actually emitted a minimum of 2.2 million tons of carbon i mean it is just ludicrous and that level of hypocrisy from world leaders undermines the messaging around climate change and actually puts many people off. So if the government does want to step in and lead the way on this, they need to lead by example with actions, not just words, but fundamentally I do believe it needs to be the private sector that uh, champions uh, getting to net zero and tackling climate change. Thank you for that message, Alex. And our next message comes from Marina. Marina says, if the government doesn't step in, Nathan, it isn't just a case of letting private companies lead. Inaction is action in itself when it comes to climate change. A government that does nothing is complicit in allowing the world to die. And our government isn't just doing nothing. They're actually benefiting emitters by allowing mines to be built in the UK and by not properly supporting sustainable waste disposal. We have a government that is promoting companies that are emitting at the moment. So we need them to do a 360 flip and start punishing heavy emitters and making it so that you cannot damage the planet anymore. That's the least we should be expecting from our government. Well, thank you for that message, Marina. And I I do agree with you to some extent here that I'm not saying there's absolutely no place for government whatsoever in this. Not at all. I'm saying that The state does need to get involved in this. It needs to be there as a presence to give an incentive to private companies to really get on board with getting to net zero, with tackling climate change, with being the change we need to see. And so in doing that, the the government should absolutely be punishing those biggest emitters and rewarding those that are going out of their way to reduce emissions and become greener and more sustainable, at, at the very least, as you say, and in particular, local councils as well—they have a, a duty to become more sustainable in their practices as well. I mean, if, if you take um, waste disposal, as you've mentioned there, Marina, you know, the, we're all encouraged to recycle. I mean, we've, we've got our green bins, our blue bins, our brown bins, our black bins—whatever colour bin you have in your uh, lo- local area. You know, and we're, we're told we, we put all, all our plastics in one, our paper in another, uh, garden waste in the other, and it, it goes on like that. But there are so many councils that do these separate bin collections. And then when it gets to the disposal centre, it all just gets put in one big pile and then sent overseas for uh, an, another company to sort out. So there's a f- famous one that was in the news a few months ago that's based in Turkey as well, that a number of councils... At, put all their rubbish together in one big pile, ship it over to this plant in Turkey, and it's up to the company over there to sort it out. Well, that, that's just a ridiculous practice and should not happen. And that's where government should step in. That's where government should be punishing those big emitters and really get getting these uh, local councils to change their practices. That That's where government needs to get involved. That's where government can lead the way. But fundamentally, it's all about incentivizing, giving people a stake in the future of a healthy planet. And by, by getting the public on board with this messaging and getting the public in favour of becoming more sustainable and environmentally friendly, that is how you do it. And because the vast majority of the public work in the private sector and the private sector is involved in an incalculable amount of of aspects of our lives, that is how you go about tackling climate change, in my opinion. Well, thank you for that message, Marina. And if you want to get involved, you can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at WizRadio. You can vote in our poll. The question of the day is, has COP26 been a success? To vote on the poll, visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. You can text us at no extra cost, only standard network rates apply, at 07807 183538. You can email us station at wizardradio.co.uk and all of our contact details can be found on the website at www.wizardradio.co.uk. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Let's check in with the results so far on this week's poll. Reminder, the question of the day is, has COP26 been a success? Well, 36% 36% of you say yes, it has, but 64% of you say no, it has not. Well, please do vote in the poll if you haven't already. And to vote, you can visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. And do keep your messages coming through as well. A reminder that all of our contact details can be found on our website at www.wizardradio.co.uk. Now, climate change is a major issue, and it's been front and centre this last few years as more and more countries move towards environmentally friendly and sustainable policies. My guest has spent decades as a climate change activist calling for greater recognition of what she calls a climate emergency and even led the Green Party into the 2015 general election. My guest this week is member of the House of Lords and former leader of the Green Party, Baroness Bennett of Manor Castle. Natalie, welcome to the show.
0: It's great to be with you.
1: Thank you. Now my first question to you today is, has COP 26 been a success?
0: Well, I started off before COP started saying that we really have to acknowledge that this is all a process, not any kind of endpoint, uh, and that what we would get out of COP would be nothing like what we actually needed, um, but would hopefully be some sign of progress. I guess I would in you know if a one sentence summary, it's a little bit better than we might have sort of predicted as a middle line. Um, So we have made progress, but it's really worth stressing that there are actually two cops going on here. There's the official one with delegations and fairly incomprehensible language and lots of discussion of brackets. And then there's the unofficial cop. I've called it the shadow cop. Someone talked about the good cop and the bad cop. Um, And that's the NGOs, the campaigners, you know, outside these gates, Extinction Rebellion, lots of scientists have all been there delivering a message about the incredible urgency of action and working out ways that they can work together to make that happen and that has been a very successful cop so you uh, perhaps you know sort of four or five out of ten for the official eight or nine out of ten for the unofficial. So
1: you're you're at the conference at the moment as we're speaking and uh, it's uh, about quarter to five in the afternoon at the moment we've just heard John Kerry speaking for the United States and he's arguing it's time for us to really come together now. We're in the home stretch of reaching a deal. What what is the general feeling among the delegates at the moment at where the progress of the summit is at?
0: Well, I've just stepped out of that plenary in which John Kerry is actually speaking. Um, and that was originally going to be at 12 o'clock and then started somewhere around, I think, about 2:45. Um, and it began with Alex Sharma, the from the UK presidency, saying please folks accept this. And was there was some talk that this might have actually been the final plenary the closing of COP. Uh, But what we heard was uh, India been sat backed up by South Africa getting up and expressing um, concern about what's actually been one of the great successes of this COP, which is the fact that the words fossil fuels have been written into a, a UNFCCC agreement for the first time ever. This might be of considerable astonishment to lots of people listening. Uh, it's not strong enough terminology. It talks about ending inefficient fuel subsidies. Um, and as uh, a World Wildlife Fund uh, speaker was saying earlier today, you know, all the Uh, fossil fuel subsidies are inefficient but we saw South Africa and India expressing disappointment with that and then very much in response we saw a number of African countries including Tanzania getting up and saying well you know we know that the loss and damage which is the recompense broadly for the global south suffering the damage that the global north has had um, we think there should be more loss and damage so as we speak this wrestle is going on I think the odds are that we will probably end up with a text, the text we have now or something very like it. Um, But I can't be absolutely certain as I talk to you today.
1: So, as you mentioned, the conference is seriously overrunning at the moment. It was due to finish on Friday, 6pm. But as you say, the discussions are still ongoing. Now, you've already addressed some of the concerns other nations have here. But are we in the territory where it's simply a process of crossing, crossing T's and dotting I's? Or are there still some real fundamental red lines from some of the parties involved?
0: Um, I think as I talk to you now, it's very hard to say. I mean, it is a reflection of the fact that it is a, a really substantial change that we have coal and fossil fuels explicitly in the text of the declaration. That is a big step forward. Now, what campaigners were hoping for a couple of days ago, I asked another WWF speaker you know, what their dream would be, and that would have been to set the deadline for the complete phase out of fossil fuels. I don't think anyone ever realistically expected that we were going to get that in the declaration. I mean, it's worth saying, explaining to people perhaps that the way COPS works is it has to be by consensus. Any single state can get up and stop this. Now, of course, there's huge amounts of diplomatic pressure being applied on on people uh, to, you know, when it comes to the crunch point as it is now. Um, But so, you know, what we get is always utterly inadequate. But I think it is encouraging that, and if we keep fossil fuels and coal there in the declaration, that's a big step forward. Um, So, you know, it's progress, We're hopefully getting there, but it would be an absolute disaster if if they were to be knocked down at this stage.
1: COP is an annual event. There's a a summit every year in a different city around the world. So is it really essential to strike a deal in Glasgow when the same conversations are going to happen again next year and continue in the uh, Egypt summit?
0: Well, as I said, this is very much a process. And so each time you want to be seen to be going forward. Now, what we're actually doing now, and one of the other very important areas of this is what's known as the Carbon Rulebook, and this is Article 6 of the Declaration, and there's been a huge amount of um, ink spent on this and many, many weary hours, and this is talking about how we do the kind of accounting for carbon that um, was agreed would happen at Paris. This is also known as the Paris Rulebook, and we're actually now looking at bringing this into effect. Now, this is very, very technical stuff, but what I hear, from the NGOs, is they're still concerned about the issue of double accounting, um, the ways in which you know I actually stepped away from this um, from COP briefly and went over to Hexham for the um, Northern Farming Conference, and there you know farmers were making this very concrete by saying you know if I store carbon on my land. Am I going to get that being recorded against me? But what happens about the person who buy my crops? Who also wants to claim credit for that? And you know, on an international scale, that's essentially what we're talking about with carbon accounting, with the Article Six, the Paris Rulebook. All of these things are to make sure that people aren't able to, essentially, get counting for carbon twice. Or even worse, and this is a grave concern. There's a process long been extremely controversial Mm -hmm. called RED Plus, um, which is theoretically Mm -hmm. stopping deforestation happening and getting credits for that. Um, But there's very large concerns about that process. And underlying that really is a principle which is being stated very strongly at this COP. It isn't reflected in the final declaration, that offsetting is a con. Um, the idea that we can keep emitting fossil fuels and plant some trees in recompense, that is an absolute con. We have to both plant the trees, look after the forests, look after the soils, look after the, the mangroves and the seagrass meadows and restore them and stop using fossil fuels. It's not an either or. And that's why this whole issue, this area is so important. Um, and we have seen real progress here in the biodiversity Um, It has been paired with the climate emergency, the fact that we've got a collapse in biodiversity um, in a way perhaps more than it ever has been before, but there's still a long way to go in this area.
1: So just on the uh, carbon emissions, one of the the biggest criticisms throughout the the summit was actually from the world leaders meeting right at the start of COP26. And the the hypocrisy of leaders and senior figures and billionaires taking large private jets and pumping out huge amounts of uh, carbon emissions. I mean, take President Biden, for example, he arrived in Italy with an 85 car motorcade and arrived in Glasgow with a 20 car motorcade on top of having Air Force One, other private jets for his other officials and helicopters. I mean, do do you think that level of hypocrisy from these leaders who are talking about the virtues of reducing emissions actually undermines the importance of what everyone's there to discuss?
0: that level of expenditure of carbon uh, is clearly indefensible. But I think if we look at this the other way around, you take, you know, we've just been hearing from uh, delegates from the Marshall Islands, you know, people who really had no alternative but to fly here. And it's absolutely crucial that we hear their voices here. And there is still something about being in a room with someone and those people being able to look um, their developed world compatriots in the eye and say, What are you doing? Look what you've done to us. That I think, you know, the idea that you could make this entire virtual is not realistic. And I think there's a really important point to be made, and it's actually made by a, a delegate, I think, from Lithuania, who's charted the way in which he got here very complicatedly across Europe, over land rather than flying, um, and pointed out how much it cost, how difficult it was, um, and you know how uncomfortable it was. Um, the slogan is system change, not climate change. And rather than focusing on individuals' behaviour, I'd rather ask um, the leaders across Europe, why haven't you made train, ferry, travel far easier, far cheaper, far more convenient? What we need to do is make it so that that's the natural way to travel. Um, that means you know, taxing airlines, um, aviation fuel as it isn't taxed now it means you know changing things so that it's viable for people and you know that's one of the things that we hear a great deal about in, in the uh, the alternative cop the shadow cop um, things like social innovation you know if you think about a four-day working week as a standard with no loss of pay uh, that for people would mean that, you know, maybe you can stack the holidays together more and and go somewhere overland by train, you know, ideally on a sleeper train, something the German Greens have been very strong in pushing, you know, you can go, I've been to Marrakesh and to Helsinki by train and ferry um, and, you know, make those things easy, affordable for people. So you know, I, rather than focusing particularly on the individual actions, you know, whatever one might think of Boris Johnson's private jet and, you know, what's wrong with it, wrong with the commercial flight. Um, but rather than focusing so much on that, let's say, what are you doing to make it possible for everyone to get where they want to go um, by low carbon routes?
1: And the, the whole narrative around COP26 and indeed the whole climate change debate, it seems to centre around what governments around the world can do to slow and halt the effects of climate change. But I mean, you mentioned some of the uh, innovations there and uses of the the private sector. Do, Do you think there needs to be a greater focus on what the market can do, what the private sector, what private companies can do to make a difference? Or do you think the focus really does need to be on governmental change?
0: Uh, well I think we need to and we can as individuals you know talk to companies tell them we want better and in fact what we see is if you think of the the sort of three main groups in society you know all the surveys all of the action what you see on the street shows that the people are hugely in advance of what they want and you think about what happened there were climate assemblies representative groups doing deliberative democracy in both the UK and France and they came up with some very strong measures um, which governments then watered down unfortunately but the people are leading, businesses are chasing after um the people, and government's in a very third weak third position. But there is a problem. You know, we can ask business to do better, but there's always a problem with even businesses that might want to do better. Um, if there's still cowboys that are allowed to get away um, with, you know, trashing the planet. Um, and it is worth stressing, you know, the climate emergency is only one of the ways in which we're busting our planetary boundaries. Yeah, you know, we're also turning our oceans into a plastic soup. We're also destroying our soils, destroying our biodiversity. Um, And polluting um, with all sorts of things, including particularly nitrogen and phosphates. Um, So, you know, we have to create a situation where those things are illegal. And what we have to do is make sure that price tag of any product actually reflects its real costs. You know, the economists call this the externalized costs. They have to be on the price tag. But then because there's so much poverty and inequality in the world, we also have to make sure that everyone has access to the resources that they need. And, you know, I say, you know, one of the messages I'm trying to spread again and again in COP and outside is there's enough resources on this planet for everyone to have a decent life for us to look after nature and climate if we just share them out fairly.
1: What Was it right for the COP26 summit organisers to actually put a, a ban on representatives from the nuclear energy industry from attending, despite nuclear being one of the cleanest and most efficient forms of energy providing?
0: There was absolutely no ban on nuclear representatives here. They actually had a stall in the main uh, pavilion alongside all of the nations. And indeed, there was um, considerable resistance uh, and concern about that. Without going through the whole debate, which probably deserves a podcast on its own, what I would say about new nuclear is that it is simply too slow. We're in a climate emergency. We have to you know, the, the the world is agreeing that we have to slash our emissions by 45% by 2030. We would say the developed world has to go much faster than that. Mm-hmm. We're not gonna have any new nuclear within 10 years at an absolute minimum. New nuclear is irrelevant to the emergency action we need to take now. And it's a distraction when, if we were focusing on renewables and particularly the Cinderella of energy conservation, um, then you know, that is the way forward nuclear is a failed dead end from the 20th century
1: okay well uh, what one of the other uh, energy sources that is not exactly the most sustainable energy source but something that the UK government in particular is uh, pursuing is a new coal mine in Cumbria, and it's raised a, a lot of controversy. I, I see you shaking your head at that. I mean, th- this new coal mine is going to use, be used specifically for coking coal. Uh, so, why, why are environmental campaigners such as yourself so against the idea of this new mine, which would actually prevent the need for coked coal to be imported from other places like Russia, thus uh, creating a far, far smaller carbon footprint?
0: Well, I mean, first of all, to say that it's expected that up to 80% of the product of that mine would actually go overseas. So the claim that it's just for our steel industry doesn't stack up. But in the broader issue, you know, what we need to do and indeed what other countries are doing and the government likes to claim they're being world leading a lot. But um, in Sweden, uh, there's a, a steel company there which actually has just delivered its first um truly low carbon steel made using hydrogen instead of coking coal um to volvo um that was only an initial delivery but they're expecting to be in full commercial operation by 2026 um and i've been pushing the government saying what are you doing about steel made with hydrogen instead of coking coal and I've got absolutely no answer in fact I got one minister who looked at me at the house very blankly and kind of said I've got no idea what you're talking about which is a worry Um, but also you know even more simply in technology that's fully developed and available now Britain exports three quarters of our scrap steel now what we could have is dotted around the country half a dozen renewably powered arc furnaces to recycle that steel and that would make the uk very nearly self sufficient in steel instead what we do now is ship it off to places like turkey where it's recycled under extremely dirty you know uh, very very far from ideal conditions so you know instead of thinking about new coal mines we should be you know and all of boris johnson's 10 point green 10 point plan you know the non existent uh, magic uh, no carbon aviation uh, carbon carbon capture and storage which you know is simply a technology that isn't here let's focus on things we know we can do now like recycling our steel.
1: Uh, I'm glad you mentioned hydrogen there it's a really exciting innovation actually for for producing uh, cleaner fuels and uh, we saw earlier this month that uh, the construction equipment company JCB they they signed a multi-billion pound deal to have all their future products use hydrogen uh, rather than uh, fossil fuels and uh, electric because the, the batteries sim- simply aren't having the necessary amount of power. So given the, the huge advancements in hydrogen fuels and innovation around that technology, Why do you think more companies and even the government, as you say that, aren't moving towards pursuing this newer and cleaner source of power?
0: I think there's a huge problem with hydrogen because there's two sorts of hydrogen. There's what's known rather inaccurately as blue hydrogen, which should be called dirty hydrogen, which is hydrogen made with fossil fuels. And there's green hydrogen made with renewables, um, very often wind farms. And there is a real place, as you rightly identify, for hydrogen for some kinds of specialist uses, um, possibly for HGBs. Um, for heavy kind of mining type machinery heavy earth moving machinery there's certainly a place for that and it's also a place as a method of storage um, for when you know the wind's blowing really strongly and you've got a great deal of electricity running around that you want to store um, but what we have at the moment from a government is a hydrogen strategy that came out very late um, and very unclear, which kind of went, well, we don't really quite know what's happening with hydrogen and we don't know how we're going to use it. We'll have to think about this for a few more years. Um, And what we should be doing is identifying hydrogen as being only green hydrogen, i.e. renewable hydrogen. And only being for those specific uses. I mean, what we're seeing is a real push from the gas industry uh, to say, "Oh, we can use this at home boilers, and we can, you know, put in boilers that can use 20% hydrogen with methane as well." Um, and that's really continuing our failed business as usual model when we have really need to to transform.
1: And what, one of the transformations that government at the moment is uh, pursuing is a move towards uh, electric vehicles. And one way they're trying to push this is by placing a ban on the sale of petrol and diesel cars from 2030. I mean, vehicle manufacturers, they're, they're using these electric cars, they're creating the, the batteries for this, but it's a, the products that they're producing are very expensive already. So is that really a viable policy for the, or the ordinary consumer?
0: Well, the practical reality is because you know, whatever's decided here at COP now, fossil fuels are on their way out. And we're seeing um, vehicle manufacturers rushing towards electric cars because they know that's the future. And, you know, no one is going to want to be the last person to buy a fossil fuel car in December uh, 2029. Um, so this is all an area that's going to move much faster than even the deadlines the government is setting. And of course, you know, if you're going to retool, retool a factory, from fossil fuel vehicles to electric vehicles, you don't gradually run down your fossil fuel production and gradually upscale your electric, you switch from one to the other. So we're gonna see that happening. But of course, you know, what we cannot afford to do, environmentally, socially, economically, is have a one-for-one one swap one fossil fuel car for one electric car. You know, the answer for transport in cities and towns has to start with active transport, walking and cycling, go for public transport, You know, far better bus services in particular, local bus services, better trains, particularly you. I recently had a speaker trying to get to an event east-west across the UK and it's just about impossible um, across England. Um, and so you know, electric cars, nothing like we're not talking about a one for one replacement we're talking about something like a one for ten replacement car clubs people so people don't own a car they just use a car rent a car when they really need to use a car pay for it according to their use which will encourage them not to use it we make public transport far cheaper so what we need is is an utter modal shift in the way we get around but also and you know what we've seen with COVID 19 people are really rethinking the kind of hypermobility. We had until very recently you know can we talk as you and i are talking now uh down uh down a a zoom call other technologies are available um or can we um find other ways to do business and that's what people are increasingly doing
1: and with battery technology as well uh, so many of the batteries now are are using lithium and the mining of lithium (laughs) used for electric vehicle batteries and also the batteries in things like smartphones tablets even the computers we're we're speaking on at the moment, the the mining process is incredibly dangerous and a very polluting practice. So again, is moving to battery technology a, a credible solution for simply getting to the net zero target, when that process can be so harmful.
0: Well, again, you know, and I, I go back to something that I agree with. I was talking about how you know I disagreed with the Indian uh, delegate in the for- the um, plenary I've just been in, uh, talking about um, you know resisting the move against fossil fuels. But what I would very much agree with was the Indian delegate said, and I'm just quoting my notes here: um, the developed world has to give up unsustainable lifestyles and and um, consumption patterns, um, and I would entirely agree with India on that. And what i would say about that is that um you know what we're doing now is trashing the planet we are creating um a we're desertifying the planet the climate unsustainable biodiversity falling off a cliff plastics everything else but what we've done while doing that is creating a thoroughly um miserable unstable, insecure society riven by poverty and inequality. You know, you look at the absolute epidemic of mental ill health um, in the UK and indeed in much, much of the global north. Um, and so really this is time to reassess and say, you know, how do we make the make the economy work for people instead of forcing people to work for the economy? It's a real turnaround and it's actually making people's lives better. And I sometimes run a thought experiment, you know, imagine we created this wonderful society, an absolute utopia, which everyone who wanted it had a good, stable job. Those who didn't have a job had a steady income anyway, like a universal basic income, warm, comfortable, affordable, heat homes, wonderful public transport. And then we said, oh, we've just discovered there's this climate emergency and we're going to have to change everything. That would be really difficult. So where we are politically now, we're talking about making changes that improve people's lives and tackle the pressing emergency that's right here in front of us today.
1: And just on public transport, is HS2 the way forward?
0: Uh, Absolutely not. Um, HS2 is um, built on that kind of idea of hypermobility that I was talking about. It is, of course, I was talking about the need to to improve east-west links, it's running north-south, it's focusing money, people, and resources even more on London, Um, and it's immensely destructive. Uh, you know, it doesn't add up. What we want to do is, is, I was talking about the kind of hierarchy, start with walking and cycling, really focus on local buses, focus on the trains that get people around in their local area, you know, rather than getting people to London, let's get people from say Manchester to Hull. Um, That's more important to, you know, something Boris Johnson's always talking about. He talked about leveling up. I like to more talk about spreading out prosperity around the country. Um, And, you know, HS2 is the very old model, um, very old way of doing things. And, you know, it just doesn't meet what we need is massively environmentally destructive. And you think about all the resources and, you know, I've been to a number of places where they're building HS2. Huge numbers of people, huge numbers of security guards because they don't have the consent of the public to build it. Um, Think about all of those people, all of those skills, all of that technology being put to improving our local rail lines. You know, that is where all that effort should be going.
1: A lot of people have been protesting HS2, but another thing that's been at the centre of climate change protests is, of course, the protest led by young people. Young people have been at the centre of so many of these climate protests, which have had a, a lot of media coverage. I mean, why should world leaders and policymakers at, at, like at COP26 listen to pr- uh, protesters like Greta Thunberg, for example, who don't have any background or experience in environmental science?
0: Well, I think what I would say is that the young people here, and you know, I've met many of them here and talked to many of them here, uh, they don't just represent the future. They represent the, pr- the, the present. 40% of the world's population is age 25 and under. And what any of those is, is an expert on what it's like to be age 12 now, age 16 now, age 21 now. Um, They, know about the world in ways in which you know the House of Lords average age 70 um, or the delegates here average age I'm told is over 60 and I believe it looking around um, simply don't have the knowledge and experience of being young and you know the huge pressure that comes from knowing this is your future not just for 10 or 20 years but you hope 40 or 50 years um, and so you know If you ask me the the answer to any question my answer will always be democracy Um, and that means listening to all of the people. The fact that COP's so unrepresentative, our governments are so unrepresentative. I mean I was at a brilliant event um, called She Changes Climate pointing out how incredibly gender unbalanced um, the UK uh, negotiating team and indeed the whole of COP is Um, and there was so much ideas, so much energy, so much potential there that's not being harnessed And I think one of the things that we we have to acknowledge is to really change the way we think about human potential. Historically, you know, in the old days, we thought about, oh, you know, there's all these people who have got to find jobs for them. We've got to work out how to make the economy find jobs. I think we've really got to start thinking in a different kind of way, which is we face an enormous number of problems, environmental, social, political, educational. We need to make sure every human being on this planet has the chance to develop to their full potential and use that potential, if we're going to actually get out of the mess we're in now. So let's regard everyone as a resource. Let's make sure everyone has a voice. And you know, I wrote, I wrote a piece at the start of COP about this, just how excluded young people, indigenous people, women are from this process. But of course, they're not allowing themselves to simply be pushed aside. They're building all of these alternative events, these alternative proceeds, procedures. And um, you know, that's where all of the innovation energy is it's not here in these halls with the tired old 20th century ideas like nuclear energy uh like like you know electric cars as a one-for-one replacement uh like how do we work out how we keep getting as much stuff or even more stuff but you know slightly more efficiently but instead building a planet a world that works for people and looks after
1: nature. Along with other climate protests as well, they, there are groups that have tried to address some of those uh, problems, social, economic, political, and most notably, there has been the, the two groups, Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain. Now, their, their actions, they've caused a lot of debate and a lot of controversy. Do you, to what extent have the, the disruptive actions of those two process groups in particular actually undermined the the message that they're trying to achieve and almost alienate the people they're trying to bring into the conversation.
0: Well, I think when you um, bring together the climate strikers and Extinction Rebellion, uh, they deserve a huge amount of credit collectively for the fact that in the plenary that I've just been in here at COP, uh, every single speaker, with the exception of one uh, that I heard, utterly accepted that the target has to be keep warming below 1.5 above pre-industrial levels. That acceptance has come about because the urgency has been driven home by that non-violent direct action. The exception, I will say, just for, for the record, unfortunately, was Australia, which is you know, one of the worst climate criminal countries out there. But so what non-violent direct action has done, as so often it has done in history, is actually shifted the goalposts, forced politicians to react to the demands. And I think if you look at Insulate Britain, what those actions did was got people talking about insulation and boy in the UK do we need to talk about insulation and you know I was talking about spreading out prosperity you could have small businesses with a decent government funded program and the right policy small businesses in every community in the land lots of jobs lots of prosperity in that community and businesses that would insulate homes and ensure that we don't have excess winter deaths as disgracefully we have at least ten thousand every year as a result of cold homes you know saving people's lives creating prosperity making people simply comfortable and healthy um you know, it's taken that to get that conversation on the table
1: as a, sort of a culmination of all the the efforts that the, the uk in particular is uh, putting uh, into uh, becoming more environmentally friendly the, the uk is planning to move to Uh, net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Now, there's a lot of debate around whether or not this target is too ambitious or whether it doesn't go far enough. Do you think, as some have suggested, that actually there should be a a referendum on on this issue about whether people actually want to pursue the policies that are being enacted at the moment or if there should be a different direction in the way that uh, environmental uh, change is, is brought about?
0: Well, to address the net zero and 2050 element first, um, I'm gonna quote the delegate from Bolivia who I've just been hearing in the plenary here at COP, who said net zero by 2050 is the great escape for developed countries. And I'd absolutely agree with that. Um, Net zero essentially takes us to offsetting, which as I was discussing before is absolutely a con. Uh, We, and what we've seen in things like red plus has been the idea of a new form of colonialism we can get very often the global south to store our carbon for us. So we can keep emitting um, you know, using fossil fuels, keep emitting carbon. Um, so it should be absolute zero. Um, and 2050, you know, I can say with absolute confidence that not a single member of the cabinet now uh, will be around, uh, you know, in government in 2050 to be held to account. Um, what we need is interim targets. And indeed, I've just been spending a great deal of time in the environment bill in the House of Lords. Um, Baroness Brown of Cambridge uh, from the Committee on Climate Change was pushing the idea of having interim targets along the way in the in the, the environment bill. And if you look at what India just came out with, which is they set um, net zero by 2070, which was actually an advance. I mean, it's more it's complicated, but it wasn't advanced. But what was crucial was they actually set interim targets along the way. So you know what we should be doing in Green Party Manifesto from um, 2019, anyone who looks wants to look at it, we were heading towards very close to zero by 2030 and that's the kind of scale that's our responsibility given our historic responsibility for all the missions are up there now heating the planet up now and the fact that we're a wealthy country that has the capacity to do that.
1: Okay well I'd like to move on away from looking at climate change and ask you about something you just mentioned there which is the House of Lords and there's an ongoing debate at the moment around how we should reform the House of Lords if we should even reform it and perhaps as a member of the Upper House I might be able to guess your answer on this but Should we abolish the House of Lords?
0: Absolutely, which may not have been the answer you were expecting. Uh, um, uh, I was appointed to the House of Lords and pretty well the first thing I did after I made my maiden speech was I trotted up to the Bill office with my Elections and Other Reforms House of Lords Bill 2020, um, which uh, actually, that was 2019 then. We've had two versions of it, um, uh, which was aiming to create a fully elected upper house. Um, The fact that we have a... Uh, mixture of patronage, which you might call the sort of 18th century method of people getting ahead, and heredity, we still have nearly 100 hereditary peers, which is kind of the medieval version of people getting ahead, um, is an absolute disgrace and an embarrassment. Uh, I was actually, a few, I think it was the cop in uh, Katowice, I was talking to some, some young European Greens, and I said to them, oh, you know, I'm afraid the un- we have an unelected House of Lords, and they laughed, It was such an odd concept, and then they were very polite, so they said, oh, so sorry, we didn't mean to laugh, but I can only say, you're absolutely right. You know, the UK is not a democracy, but what's absolutely astonishing is that um, not only do we have an unelected House of Lords, we have an unelected House of Lords that's more representative of the country than the House of Commons is because um, the House of Commons, Boris Johnson, got the backing of 44% of the people who voted, that was about 37% of registered voters in 2019, and he got 100% of the power in the lower house. Whereas in the upper house, the balance of power actually rests with the crossbenchers, which are the non-party people. Some very good people like um, John Bird, founder of The Big Issue, uh, Sir Simon Woolley, founder of Operation Black Vote, Deborah Bull, ballet dancer, now very much a champion of the cultural industries and it's actually people like that who have the balance of power in the upper house and you know this just just being beautifully demonstrated by the amazing sight of the Duke of Wellington leading the people's charge for action against the water companies on sewage Um, and you know it demonstrates what you can do with the House of Lords as it is now and that's what I'm going to try and keep doing but you know we cannot have this situation continuing it's you know, people wanted to take back control in 2016 and i think they're absolutely right but the lack of control the problem is westminster it wasn't brussels
1: i mean the, the house of lords it's the second largest parliamentary chamber in the world behind china's national people's congress I mean, do, do you think there should be fewer members and if so how should we go about reducing that number
0: well i think we should replace the current house with an elected house and you can potentially do that in over the stages of two elections so that you would keep some of the you know apply some criteria that affects how much people have actually done useful stuff in the house and keep them you know and and so do it over two elections because an entirely new chamber would be i mean i wouldn't say don't do it but it would be a challenge um but you know despite the fact we've got i think it's a is it 820 I've, i've lost track of the last number it goes up so fast but um we still, you know, people make much of, oh, they're experts, they're scrutinising. But if you look at, for example, at the financial services bill, which, you know, we have a huge problem with the financialization of our whole society, um, the, you know, gambling out of control nature of our financial threat sector threatens the security of all of us. Yet, if you look at the debates, the de- what are supposed to be the detailed scrutinising debates in the financial services bill, essentially, there was... Um, Myself, Lord Seeker, who's a very independent minded Labour peer, um, uh, Lord Davies of of Brixton sometimes, one or two other peers who were, you know, challenging what the financial sector is doing. There's a whole group of peers who are representatives of the financial sector saying the government should let them free, have fewer controls. But, you know, there were maybe four or five people in each debate group, if you were lucky. Um, So, you know, we're not seeing the kind of detailed examination of issues, even in the House of Lords. And if you look at debates in the Commons, I mean, there's no no consideration at all. The government just pushes things through.
1: There's a case to be made about perhaps even keeping the hereditary peers in the House of Lords as they act as a, a restraint when scrutinizing House of Commons bills. So, for example, they understand the democratic deficits that they bring. And you know a number of them have a, a variety of different perspectives due to their other interests and experiences. I mean, what, what do you make of that argument?
0: Well, I think you know, we should think about what it does to society. The idea that you can be born into a position just because of an accident of birth, just because of who your parents are, you end up with an accepted place in society. Now, that's something that effectively doesn't just apply at the very top of society to a few people. That's a inclination, an understanding that goes right through society. You know, I have grave concerns in talking about social mobility because it very often means the idea that, well, you know, there's the occasional person who grows up in a poor community and will lift them up and out of that. What we actually need is a society that meets everyone's needs, that actually ensures that we respect and pay well every job that needs doing in our society. You know, that means street sweepers and bus drivers and school dinner ladies. All of these jobs need to be done. They should be respected, treated properly. You know, care workers, we've suddenly started to realise this is a tremendously skilled, difficult job, which we've treated with utter disrespect, you know. The whole hereditary principle is profoundly antithetical to the idea that we, are, we should be working towards a society where everyone's respected, everyone's skills and talents develop, um, and you know, we allow everyone to flourish. It's the absolute opposite of that principle.
1: Well, to to finish, I I want to ask you about a, a couple of recent polls that have come out, which have actually shown a really big rise in support for the Green Party and could actually see the Green Party become a kingmaker should there be a hung parliament. So if a general election were called and it did result in a hung parliament, which party should the Green Party prop up in a minority government?
0: Well, I mean, we would never support a conservative government. You know, that's the party of the financial sector, the party of developers um, who've got ourselves out of such a mess in the UK, and in, in England here in particular. Um, we would be looking not towards a coalition, but some sort of, you know, confidence and applying agreement. We would want to, you know, keep our independence. And, you know, I'm very delighted and, and excited by the fact that we now have two green, green ministers in the Scottish government. And that's been done on the basis that they have certain portfolios they will work with the government they won't you know bring the government down um, but they will also retain remain their, retain their independence on voting on certain issues that are absolutely crucial to our understandings and you know for those who are old enough we really just have to think of the lib dems and tuition fees to see the kind of damage that can be done by a party you know not setting out its red lines not saying where it's very clear that things that it won't support um, and so it's a matter, a matter of balance of finding a way uh, forward. Um, and the interesting thing is, where this is actually already happening, there are Greens in um, thirteen local government authorities around England um, that are in what are often called rainbow coalitions, all sorts of mixtures of different parties getting together to deal with what needs to be done in the local area. Um, and that's something that you know we're actually developing weirdly enough, a European style, proportional representation style politics um, at the local level, because I think local people are so fed up with the nature of the politics that First Pass the Post has given us.
1: Okay, Baroness Bennett of Manchester. thank you very much for coming on the show and best of luck for the remainder of COP26.
0: Thanks very much. I've enjoyed talking. <laughs>
1: Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much to Baroness Bennett of Manor Castle for coming on the show. We're still discussing the COP26 summit, so please do continue to vote in our poll. A reminder, the question of the day is, has COP26 been a success? And to vote on the poll, visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. Let's go back to your messages. And our next message comes from Fiona. Fiona says, during your introduction, I was looking up CO2 emissions by country per capita. And the numbers are actually shocking. India might emit 7% of the world's share of CO2, but it's only emitting 1.9 tonnes per capita. For comparison, the UK emits 5.5 per, ca- per tonnes per capita. China, which is the number one emitter in the world, emits 7.38 tonnes per capita. The US is the second biggest emitter in the world. 14% of the world's share of carbon emissions comes from the US at a rate of 15.52 tonnes per capita. Canada, Canada is a much smaller slice. It's number seven on the list with 1.89% of the world's carbon emissions at a rate of 18.5 tons per capita. These countries that are emitting so much per capita need to be punished by the UN or something. How is the US standing there at a position of power when it is causing so much damage? Well, thank you for that message, Fiona. And it's an interesting point you make there, especially about the United States. As I said in response to one of the earlier messages the United States in particular President Biden really needs to lead by example on this and just in response to that earlier message as well I noted that how how he'd produced so many 2.2 million tons of carbon emissions was produced in his European trip which is just an astonishing figure. And when you actually break it down, it actually gets even worse because he he came over to Glasgow for the summit with three Boeing Globemaster aircraft, which are humongous uh, freight aircraft as well. One was carrying a helicopter, a massive helicopter, uh, better known as Marine One, which is this huge, big, gas-guzzling... helicopter that actually wasn't used while he was uh, in Glasgow because uh, the conditions weren't right to take him from Edinburgh, where the aircraft were landing, to Glasgow. As well as that, there was a Globemaster used to carry the staircase for Air Force One. Yes, that's right, the staircase to Air Force One. In addition, there was the Globemaster used for his 20-car motorcade. There was, of course, the big Boeing 747 Air Force One that uh, landed with him in it there were also two extra smaller private jets for other senior officials in uh, president biden's entourage and those numbers those figures it's just shocking that a u.s president is traveling across the atlantic to attend a climate change summit when he himself is leaving behind an immense carbon footprint it is simply simply unacceptable really but uh, you're absolutely right to mention the the us and other countries there so thank you for that message fiona and some very interesting statistics our next message comes from sarah sarah says too much of the focus has been on net zero and big government schemes make no mistake about it nathan we need to change our way of life our lives are not currently sustainable and the way we are exploiting the planet and have done for decades needs to end One of the biggest things we can do is stop eating meat because so many harmful processes are linked to meat production, including the land it uses, the gases they release, the overuse of water, the transportation and so on. I stopped eating meat a couple of years ago and I've never regretted it that has nothing to do with the government not everyone will do that but that's an example of as how we as people need to start realizing our power and actually cause change well thank you for that message sarah and you know you're right to say that uh, individuals we can t- take steps in their own lives to change their habits to become more sustainable and eating meat is just one one aspect of this i mean Uh, Personally, I am a meat eater. I intend to continue eating meat. I I like a burger and a steak every now and again. But again, that is personal choice. And again, it links back to something that I I talk about a lot on this show, which is the idea of personal responsibility. It's not right that governments can keep coming in with these interventionist policies to uh, tell us we, we can do this, we can do that, we can't do this, we can't do that. And Eat meat eating again. That's a personal choice. It's your personal responsibility to risk assess and look at your own situation, your own circumstances, and make that judgment. And it's absolutely right and fair that you know we we, we do that. But I I I don't think we are looking at the whole debate around net zero properly because as uh, we heard in the interview before, net, net zero isn't actually net zero, it's just offsetting carbon and trying to get to a point where you are trying to uh, minimise the amount of impact you are making. Uh, if you take a, a commercial flight uh, internationally that's a few hours and then you proceed to plant a few trees to try and soak up the amount of carbon you're, you're using throughout that journey, well, all you're doing is just creating a process to store carbon, you're not reducing the amount of emissions, you're just simply, as it says, offsetting your impact. So I I think we need to have a very serious conversation about what net zero really looks like, what it really means, and fundamentally what it means for our day to day lives, especially given that the government at the moment is even looking at uh, putting a ban on gas boilers and replacing them with heat pumps as well in a bid to go to net zero. So, again, there's much to be looked at in this, and even the debate around net zero is a show for another day. But thank you for that message, Sarah. And our final message today comes from Daniel. Daniel says, I don't know what success at COP26 honestly looks like, Nathan, but Paris was seen as successful, and yet we hear that most countries are way behind where they should be to meet the Paris Accord targets. What's the point of countries pledging their support of an accord or agreement, but then they just take no action whatsoever? It was heartbreaking to see representatives of smaller countries, who are physically losing land because of rising sea levels, saying that they feel helpless because nothing is actually being done. There's a lot of talk and not a lot of action, at a time when action is desperately needed to prevent the absolute worst from happening. We have a responsibility to help those smaller countries because it is our abuse of the planet that is causing their suffering. And yet our politicians are doing nothing at all when they're called on. Well, thank you for that message, Daniel. And the smaller countries at COP26 were making some very heartfelt and impassioned pleas to the larger countries. And that's why the huge, huge watering down of the uh, policy on coal was so infuriating. And in fact, the prime minister and Uh, the president of the summit, Alok Sharma, Uh, both of them are going to be doing a press conference at uh, five o'clock today, five o'clock on Sunday afternoon UK time. And they're essentially going to be saying how disappointed they are in the actions of China and India in essentially watering down the entire agreement that will seriously impact those smaller nations, as you say, particularly those island nations as well. And you know, there, there really needs to be a lot of reflection on this uh, COP26 summit, and a lot of work needs to go into COP27 in Sharm el Sheikh, and indeed for COP28, which uh, it was revealed earlier this week is going to be held in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. So, which again, there's uh, questions to be raised about uh, the use of fossil fuels and oil over there as well. But again, That is an issue for another day but you're absolutely right to mention the impact on these smaller nations and indeed the fact that so many of the smaller nations were really visibly upset at the actions of the larger countries and it is incumbent on them to make the changes needed to reduce emissions and slow the warming of the planet. Well, thank you for that message there, Daniel, and I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week. But before we go, let's check in with the final poll result remind the question of the day is, has COP26 been a success? 29% of you say yes, 71% of you say no. Well, thank you to everyone who's listened to this week's episode and thanks to everyone who sent in messages live. If your message wasn't read out this week, then please do try again next week. Thank you to my guest, Baroness Bennett of Manor Castle, I'm Nathan Eckersley and I'll be back at the same time, same place next week. Goodbye.